The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. The, uh, as, as I've suggested, you, you may recall, uh, this giving this contru- uh, construal to the present tense in 4.3 that is, that it's either present for the future or a progressive uh, present which indicates a process that has not yet reached to its goal. Um, as I've worked through the New Testament, I may have missed something, but the closest parallel that I can find to the uh, a semantic parallel, but also with some, um, some I think, instructive linguistic uh, connections too, is the statement that we have in Acts 14.22. So if you turn there, just a second, Acts 14.22. I meant to have an overhead, but I didn't, um, wasn't able to, um, or didn't remember to do that. Um, The context here, Acts 14.22, is um, uh, a narration of Paul's uh, return the return leg of the first missionary journey back through the areas uh, in um, lower part of Asia Minor there uh, on the way back to Antioch. And uh, we're told then, let's see, picking up um, as he returns through Lystra, uh, Iconium and An- to Antioch, uh, strengthening the souls of the disciples, uh, exhorting them to remain in the faith and... Here we have a representation of a, of a quotation, the uh, content of the exhortation, saying that through many afflictions, it's necessary that through many afflictions we enter into the kingdom of God. Now, um, a couple of things that we can uh, point out here. Uh, first of all, entering the kingdom entering the kingdom of God, that corresponds materially to entering God's rest. And you can see, um, not only is there material correspondence, um, but we have the same verb, um, ace erkomai, the same verb that we have in Hebrews um, Four three. It's it, it, because of the syntax here. It's the aorist active infinitive. So uh, entering the kingdom, entering God's rest are um, interchangeable. We can say, particularly if we keep in mind the things that um, we've already observed. That is that the rest is comprehensive in in Hebrews. Now. Um, In fact, we uh, can just remind ourselves that the kingdom, even more obviously than God's rest, is a comprehensive eschatological category. Taking you back now to your basic work in in Gospels, Gospel exegesis. Uh, The kingdom 
as uh, the comprehensive eschatological reality announced in the coming of Jesus, that eschatological entity that is both present and future. And in fact, as we look elsewhere in Luke-Acts, we'll keep just uh, stick to uh, Lucan material within uh, what is uh, common material, common synoptic material. Uh, Luke is quite clear in making, um, in, in, in uh, indicating that the kingdom is present. Just to remind ourselves, Luke seven twenty eight, out of the teaching of Jesus, uh, uh, among those born of woman, uh, no one, um, um, no one's greater than John the Baptist. The least one. Um, and the kingdom is, is greater. Or 1120, uh, if by the finger equal spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom, the basile of God's come upon you. Uh, 1721, uh, the kingdom of God is within you or more likely among you, but a strong statement of, of presence of the kingdom. So Luke is very emphatic. Uh, uh, no question that Luke in his record of the teaching of Jesus, shows, teaches that the kingdom is present. But just recognizing that, still, uh, and I think as you look at the commentators, uh, they're all of a common mind on this, uh, no one finds a present meaning here in Acts 14.22. Uh, an, entirely, an entirely future sense is... It's risky to say this in doing exegesis, but I'll say it anyway. It's obvious here. <clears throat> now, notice also uh, Paul talks here not just about entering the kingdom, but he says that that takes place, that is going to take place, dia polon flipseon, through many tribulations. Now, let me get... Use the rhetorical question here. Doesn't that remind you of the desert situation? See, that captures the wilderness reality of Hebrews 3 and 4. And notice then that here, these tribulations are not the conditions under which the kingdom is now being realized. That could have been said. I don't question that again, uh, that it could be, that point could be made. But the tribulations are not conditions under which here are not conditions under which the kingdom is presently being realized, but they are the, uh, the uh, tribulations through which believers must presently pass in order to enter the kingdom that lies beyond. Notice in the third place. That correlative uh, to entering the kingdom is um, the, the first part of the exhortation that they remain in the faith. Continuing in the faith is the correlate of entering the kingdom. So there, here, there's a call here, you see, to perseverance in faith, a call to perseverance. And the point here um, is that perseverance does not possess the kingdom that has already come, but reaches out for the kingdom yet to come. 
reaches for the kingdom yet to come. And then just add this uh, fourth point. What controls the whole construction here uh, that we've been analyzing? Uh, The controlling notion is that of exhortation or encouragement. Paracoluntus, another example of the paracletic that we were um, effectively, so effectively addressed about in, in our chapel this morning. And that uh, serves, you see, to um, um, uh, connect with what we saw to be uh, the pervasively paranetic, paracletic paranasis. You can put it down here, I guess, here. That's not for pulpit consumption, but maybe it will work here. Uh, That reminds us, that that ties in, you see, with Hebrews 13.22 and um, the overall a hortatory thrust of the document. So, um, the, 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 force of he, the, pre, the force of the present tense in 4.3 um, is, is, I think, uh, more um, as being counter-indicative to the, to the basic point we've been arguing uh, is, is more apparent than real and really um, yields before more careful reflection. Yes. Yeah, good question. I guess my answer is kind of yes and no. Um, the um, I think the future tense. Let me just say something that I that is maybe subject to correction by more careful uh, uh, examination of things. Uh, I suspect. See what you're doing with is you're you're dealing with translation Greek, and I think it reflects the the strongly uh, asseverative, as we as as you say technically, of the oath character of the Hebrews, uh, by of, of of Hebrew at this point. By no means shall they enter into my rest. But again, I think from the context, which is in the you know the wilderness situation, um, it's looking toward the future. I don't think it's so much a tense consideration there. Now, uh, thirdly, and this will get us now into our uh, examination of verse uh, 10. Um, Many understand the force of verse 9, that is the Sabbath resting, and and more broadly the rest throughout the the passage as a whole. They understand it uh, as present as well as future, not only because of the, uh, for the reasons we've just been interacting with, but because of the way in which they understand verse 10, because of the way verse 10 is taken. And we want to look at that now because it seems to me that the way in which verse 10 is read on the construction that we're dealing with uh, brings to a light uh, what strikes me as a basic flaw in understanding um, the, the notion of rest that we have throughout this passage. And I think we could even say um, uh, that a proper understanding of 
and following as a whole. A proper understanding of the passage in some respects pivots around a right interpretation of 4.10. Now, what does 4.10 say? All right, the statement, there remains sabbatismos for the people of God. For the one who has entered into his rest has himself rested, rested, himself has rested from his works as God understood has rested from his own works. So the one uh, in, in the in the the out two here, um, because English doesn't inflect, uh, it's a very it can be a very by its statement a very ambiguous statement. You have to ask yourself who are the antecedents? What's the antecedent of the his? The his you see here is referring back to um, to the subject, the one who entered, the one entering into. Excuse me, I'm already confusing the situation. The one who entered into his rest, that is God's rest. I think we want to say that because of the way in, in, in which the, uh, the, um, throughout the context, um, the, the rest is described as, as my, that is God's rest, and now the shift to the third person possessive uh, because requirements of the context. Um, the one who has entered into God's rest, that one himself has ref- rested from his, not God's, but his own works as God has rested from his works. Okay? So, um, uh, well, at least two things, I think, can be uh, observed here um, as more or less uh, beyond debate and, and give us a point of departure. Because of the introduction back at verse 4, back in verse 4 of... Genesis, um, excuse me, there. The introduction of Genesis 2.2, and then as well the reference to Sabbath keeping in verse 9. God's rest again comes into view when it talks about God resting here. We obviously have to connect that back to Genesis 2. Um. So God's rest at creation once again comes into view. And then what I was trying to uh, labor uh, in, in the translation, a parallel is drawn, you see here. What we have here is a clear parallel being drawn uh, with some deliberateness, a parallel between believers or the believer um, a representative singular, a parallel between believers and God. And the parallel is this. Their resting is to their works as God's resting is to his works. Now, particularly that second point is very important to get a hold of. Their resting that is, believers resting, or the believer's rest is to his work as 
God's rest is to his works. Uh, by the way, just here in passing, this would now pick up, I think, on the Chantry article because I've, I've looked at work that he's done um, on the Sabbath before, and I have a lot of sympathy for uh, what he wants to argue. But see, going back, Owens in his long, uh, John Owens in his long excursus on the Sabbath in the introductory volume on the exposition of Hebrews, he wants to argue for the reason that you indicated earlier that the whole Asel phone here is a is an oblique reference to Christ, so that what's being said here is that Christ has rested from his works as God has rested from his works. He sees that as the comparison. And um, I, I just I have a great... Uh, I, I think to go back to 3.6 is not only a long leap, but verse 6, 3.6 6 doesn't say anything about uh, rest at that point. But the point you're making, I'm not sure that he would argue it just from that. But uh, while it's true, uh, the point being made here, while it's true that the aorist participle often has, uh, relatively speaking, time prior to the time of the main verb, it, it strictly uh, it, it does not have really any time force. It simply brings the activity here entering, it brings it into view in a simple or indefinite way. Um, and, um, and and really says nothing about the time. Um, so uh, it, again, it, it just to, to find a reference here to Christ in verse ten seems to be uh, reading in um, seems to have lost sight of the immediate context. As to, I think we have something similar happening happening uh, in verse nine, the effort to read into uh, Sabbatismus, an explicit uh, enjoining of keeping the fourth commandment. Now, so if we if we leave to the side uh, this uh, um, argument uh, or, or this understanding of Owens and more recently uh, Chantry, apparently, then this question comes on comes before us. In other words, as we see a reference to believers here. What does it mean for believers to enter rest from their works, which is the one side of the parallel here? That's the issue before us. Now, admittedly, a number, and we will see uh, that this number goes back uh, in its precedence uh, and uh, its uh, high pedigree to no one lesser than Calvin himself. So we're having to distance ourselves from Father John at this point. Um, The understanding here is uh, that these works that are being referred to in verse 10 are what the writer elsewhere calls dead works. The dead works, that the works in view uh, related to the believer in in, in 4.10 are the dead works referred to in 6.1 and then also 9.14. So 
So that on this view, rest means, in a sense, in, in effect, rest means to cease from relying on your own works. To cease from relying on your own efforts. Or even more pointedly, it means to cease from your evil works. Cease from your evil works. In other words, to come to the, um, to the bottom line here uh, quickly, the point of verse 10 on this understanding, and that would involve it, uh, the understanding then also of the present rest that uh, is argued for in this passage, the point of verse 10 is justification by faith. Justification by faith. And that really becomes a, a controlling sort of, uh, of, of uh, principle looking throughout the passage. Now, as we indicated, this, uh, this interpretation has um, certainly a venerable tradition. It goes back uh, at least to Calvin, uh, probably earlier. But uh, I think it is not a correct understanding for a couple of reasons. Let me indicate for one thing, it loses sight of the local character of rest. That is, the rest here is a resting place throughout the passage. It loses sight, in other words, or, or it fails to do justice to the writer's use of the wilderness motif. That is, as the rest is a resting place, just in contrast to the wilderness. Further, and in some respects, to me at least, more telling against this position, and, and it, it surprises me, if I'm missing something, I need to have it pointed out to me and, and be sure to do it if you see it, but it surprises me that, that more people don't pick up on this point. To understand the passage here as a reference to justification by faith um, involves a deep incongruity, a jarring incongruity, as I would want to say, because it would involve the writer in drawing a direct, remember the parallel that's in view here, it would involve the writer in drawing a direct or positive parallel between our sinful works, and God's works at creation. In other words, the writer would say, um, stop sinning, stop trying to justify yourself, just as God stopped from his work. Now, you see, some try to uh, obviate that point, uh, at least implicitly, by saying that the, that the point is, is here is the fact of rest. The point of the, compar the, 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 point of the comparison is, is rest, not what is rested from. But I just don't see how you can get away with that, because the writer is, he doesn't say just as God rested, but he tells us what God rested from, his own works. So it seems to me the point of the comparison is both uh, the fact of rest as well as what is rested from. 
And uh, you, you can see uh, the point here. It, it, in a sense, it's a, it's a theological point, if you will, um, uh, in, in arguing from wider considerations, but it, it seems to me those rest on a, on a careful exegetical foundation. Uh, nowhere else does the New Testament even a, wrote, remotely approach the notion uh, that, to put it another way, repentance from dead works is analogous to God resting from his labors at creation. So I'm saying that on, on the understanding of verse 10 that we're dealing with here, uh, what we have is a synthetic association between sin and God's activity. That is simply uh, an impossibility for any New Testament writer. Okay, let, um, let's call... Excuse me, I should have been clear. Let's call everything that, I, that I've been saying so far under 410 uh, a first area. Now, secondly, uh, on a more positive vein, uh, how are we then to understand verse 10? Well, I think uh, a correct interpretation depends on seeing that believers' works are being viewed positively here. Not negatively, but positively. Um, the nature of the uh, analogy that is being drawn disposes toward that. So, uh, so the, uh, what the believer does is being considered positively. And, and there is uh, support, uh, specific uh, support for that in the document. In other words, the works here are not the dead works of uh, these passages, but what the writer calls their love and good works in 10.24, or their work and love, 6.10. And um, if you look at these statements in context, you'll see that they're not just isolated there, but uh, there's a certain amplification of, of what the writer um, has in view. And... Um, Further, the writer says in 1025, just beyond here, which I think uh, is, is particularly instructive. Um, no, he doesn't say it there. Um, he says it in, in the context of 610. Um, God is not unjust so as to forget your works, your good works. Um, and it's especially God is not unjust, now the connection with the statement in 1024, uh, as you see the day approaching, God is not unjust to forget your works as we look forward to final judgment. So again, the works in view in 410 are those works toward which believers are to spur one another on that also comes out in 1024. Spur one another on to good works. Uh, works for which they are to maintain uh, their diligence. The diligence that they've already shown and are main, to maintain until the very end, 611. 
So I've just, I've just highlighted uh, uh, phrases here. If you look at 10, 24, 25, 6, 10, and 11, you'll, you'll I think, see that. Um, so, um, in a word here, to make our point, we can say that the works of 410 are not dead works, but desert works. They are not dead works, but desert works. They are the works of believers in the present wilderness situation. That is the non-rest situation. They are the works of the present non-rest, non-rest wilderness situation as they are looking toward the future rest, the rest that is promised, the rest that is hoped for. They are, to put it another way, the wilderness rest, or they are the wilderness works of the church on the way between Exodus from Egypt, redemption, and on the way to the rest of Canaan. And by the way, look at, um, uh, just to underline this point, look at 3.16, Hebrews 3.16. Uh, The question, who when they heard were embittered, became embittered? Was it not all those who came out of Egypt through Moses? So I would say in this passage, in terms of the model there in 3.16, here is the truth of justification in this passage. That is, already having been delivered from bondage, the bondage of sin pictured by the exodus from Egypt. That is the, if you will, the justification motif in this passage. Um, Deliverance from Egypt, not entering the rest. So, uh, just on the syntactical point, uh, we would say then that the main verb in, in, in 10a the one uh, who has entered into God's rest has rested from his own works. The main verb uh, in the aorist there, cut um, that has a generalizing or gnomic force. It's a gnomic aorist. And the clause as a whole then describes a future state of rest with the wilderness left behind. A future state of rest where the wilderness will be left behind And it's a rest, then, toward which the writer immediately goes on to exhort his readers to to exert themselves toward. An exhortation to exert themselves. The capstone statement, let us be diligent to enter that rest. So let's just uh, come back for a few moments, uh, that indication of how um, uh, verse uh, 10 ought most, almost certainly to be taken. Um, 
and uh, interact then with the alternative uh, voice, uh, ver, uh, understanding. It seems to me that um, it's necessary to take the view of verse 10 that the works there are sinful or self-justifying works. In other words, that what's being described is justification by faith or the forgiveness of sins. It's necessary to take that understanding of verse 10 if you're going to find present so-called spiritual rest in this passage. And we've already indicated the difficulties of that exegetically in, in 4.10 itself, but let me just uh, accent again um, some, some further di- di- difficulties uh, looking at the, uh, the context, uh, the larger uh, context here, the passage. See, what that way of construing 4.10 uh, and, and finding spiritual rest in the passage or justification by faith, it breaks down what is the writer's basic distinction throughout this passage. It's the distinction that his uh, singling out of the wilderness motif or the wilderness rest motif makes very graphic. Uh, the distinction... Uh, um, and, and, we, and we should say further, uh, the distinction on which the, the hortatory element uh, that permeates the entire book rests. And that is the distinction between the present necessity for perseverance, read wilderness. See, that's what wilderness means, the, pre, uh, to, the, the need to persevere. It breaks down, I'm saying, this position, the distinction between the present necessity for wilderness and the future when there will be no need to persevere, which is the rest. Or to put it another way, to try to to bring out the thrust of the passage here. In this passage, the opposite of rest, that is the wilderness, the opposite of the rest is not sin, but tested faith. The opposite is tested faith. Not sinning. Um, And the view then which finds present rest in verse 10, that I think we can say confuses the goal which is rest, with what appropriates the goal. That is persevering faith. It confuses the goal, we're saying, one way of putting it, rest with what appropriates the goal. Or to put it in other terms, it, 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 it confuses hoping... It confuses hoping of the present, maybe I should have put this up here more clearly, present and future, with the object hope, the thing hoped for. And as Paul says, Romans 8, 24 and 25, um, to the effect, uh, if you already have it, you don't keep on hoping for it. 
So what happens on this view is that it, it, try, it tries to include the notion or include in the notion of rest um, precisely what the writer wishes throughout the passage to contrast with rest. It tries to include in the notion of rest what the writer wants throughout the passage to contrast with rest. In other words, it tries to include within the notion of rest the present life of faith its wilderness character, uh, which the writer wishes throughout to contrast with rest. Um, if, if, uh, let me go on and make a, a couple of obs- uh, further observations here in this vein, which um, uh, may be pushing somewhat exegetically, but... Uh, I think do um, do have uh, their weight at least as a, su- uh, a suggestion in this passage three seven and following the wilderness as we've emphasized again and again while it is essentially a place of testing and temptation the wilderness is also the wilderness here is also a place of redemption. Because, you see, those who are in the desert are not just any people in the desert, but those in the desert, we're just looking at it according to 3.16, are all those Moses led out of Egypt. So the desert as a place of testing is also a place of deliverance. And we could even say then, you see, that the presupposition of temptation... The presupposition of temptation to apostasy is salvation. Now, that brings into view all of uh, the passages that we want to, um, to look at next that have to deal with apostasy. But just uh, bring that uh, dimension out here. So now to try to, to bring out the truth of realized eschatology that we certainly don't want to divorce from this passage, um, we could, um, we could put it this way. You see, realized eschatology creates the wilderness congregation. That is, the realized eschatology creates the church or constitutes the church as the new and final wilderness community. So this is where uh, the index of present eschatology, the, indica- the, indica- the indicator of present eschatological reality throughout this passage is not rest, but the wilderness contrasted with the rest. And that just points up again that the works in view in 410 are uh, not sinful works, but persevering faith and obedience. Look very quickly at um, um, Revelation 14, 13. And um, there, uh, I think we have... These are our remarks subsumed under 410. There we have 
so far as I can see, a, a, the closest, it's not exact, but a, a close New Testament parallel to a, a, um, Hebrews 4.10, Revelation 14.13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the, do- are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, I sa- yes, the Spirit says, that they may rest from their labors, for their works follow along with them. Follow with them. Now, in view here, let's note the differences. In view here in 14.13 are the dead who die in the Lord. Uh, while the rest in view in Hebrews 3 and 4 is the rest that comes at the parousia. But certainly uh, the two viewpoints are complementary. I think we had a question about this this last time. Just repeat what I uh, said there. Because the writer of Hebrews also knows of a present assembly in the heavenly Jerusalem uh, that includes the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Hebrews 12.23. So it's not as if this is radically somehow dissimilar in eschatological outlook. Uh, but notice then what the um, um, what, revelate, what the revelation statement says, the, what the Spirit says here. Believers will rest from their labor, for their works will follow them. Or as Hebrews says, God is not unjust to forget your works. So, um, to round off this um, discussion that's gotten somewhat longer um, than I had um, anticipated, this would be, I guess, let's call this point D, finally interacting with the objections. Uh, the, the problem that I have um, with, with the view that wants to see present as well as future in the rest here in this passage, is that it really uh, is involved in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of massive semantic overload. It's trying to read into the concept of rest um, what the writer is wanting, uh, elements which the writer is wanting to keep apart, that is, a present as well as a future rest, and in that way, uh, it, it, it takes a point um, that the writer, I think, puts out rather clearly, univocally, univocally and, and, and blurs it. Um, and you can't just say, well, that's the, um, you know, that's, that's the genius of New Testament eschatology to, to, re, to weave already and not yet together. I think more than that is happening here. Uh, it, it creates uh, such a paradox um, that um, it, it, uh, it, it, in effect, blurs rather than um, brings together uh, considerations that the writer would want us to keep in mind. Any questions after all that? No. I have not, I know I have not answered your question. <laughs> um, excuse me, I should have been clearer the way I put that. Um, the, um, the question, um, basically this, this interacting with the objections.
Let me uh, finally then, and this would be point eight. Point seven was all that we've been spending some time on now. Um, and uh, now I want to indicate, and again, uh, just uh, get at the, the main points of what I've already asked you to read, um, some conclusions that bear on a theology of the Sabbath. You know, what can we draw without pushing beyond what is exegetically um, supportable, either explicitly or by good and necessary consequence? Um, so it's, it, this is sort of bottom line conclusion or whatever. Now, um, it seems that we can, we can sum up things this way. As we look at the passage 3, 7 and following, um, to try to capture in summary form, there are four points that are made about the rest for the church in Hebrews 3, 4. It is, and by the way, these are on page 47 of of article. It's eschatological. The rest is eschatological. It's, as we've been laboring to say, entirely future. It's eschatological future. It is, then, in the third place, it's called Sabbath resting. It's Sabbath resting. And further, because of the use as well of Genesis 2, it's, it's Sabbath resting. It's grounded in the rest of God at creation. That's the ultimate God's creation rest, is the ultimate anchor point. Now, um, it seems to me that if you take A and C, A and C, um, what the writer is saying is that whatever else may be the significance and, and functions of the Sabbath, the Sabbath is an eschatological sign. The weekly Sabbath is eschatological sign, a pointer to eschatological rest. If you were to deny that, you see, that would mean that the writer not only coins the term Sabbath resting, but connects that with Genesis 2.2, which is used to support the fourth commandment elsewhere, that he draws those connections without any thought of the weekly ordinance. And that, I think, is, is rather unlikely supposition. If you look at B, considering B now, that is entirely future, that was the first point we were making, now second point. Uh, the, week, uh, the weekly Sabbath continues in force under the new covenant. The weekly Sabbath continues in force under the new covenant. If we deny that, then we would be supposing that for the writer, the weekly sign has ceased even though the reality to which it points is still future. And again, uh, that seems an unlikely supposition. What rationale would there be to explain uh, a severing 
by saying the weekly Sabbath has ceased, a severing of the sign and unfulfilled reality. No, that's what I, I want. It, at least it not. I'm wanting to have my cake and eat it too here, in a certain sense. In, in the sense, I think we have to be clear that he is not, as you said, uh, deciding to make an excursus here because these uh, Hebrew, uh, the people I'm writing to, need to be straightened out on the continuing obligation to keep the fourth commandment. But I'm just saying, because of the way in which he uses the material, that that comes in as inference to be drawn from his from his line of argumentation. And what he's saying in this passage, to the extent that he brings the Sabbath sign in, he's saying uh, not that the Old Testament Sabbath um, the, the issue of whether or not the Old Testament Sabbath as a sign points to what has been realized in the first coming of Christ. See, that's not in his purview here. But he's saying that the Old Testament Sabbath sign has, say, has something to say about the future. What, what is still future for the church? So that to that extent, as the rest is still future, the, then the sign still pointing to what is not yet realized still continues in force, unless there's some offsetting consideration to, to, uh, to say um, that that's not the case. I'm just saying so far as what we, 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 we would have to hypothesize that uh, while there is a clear connection between sign and still future reality, there's something else that breaks that connection, and there's certainly nothing in this passage that indicates that. 